Hey, Jen. Hey, Tina. You ready? I'm ready. Okay, here we go. You're listening to Speaking of Racism. of racism listeners here are two new voices for you all this season i am so happy to have you here with us today friend uh we are talking about reparations (laughs) and i would love for you to tell the listeners who you are and why you are a part of this important conversation my goodness kina thank you so much Um, My name is Caroline Kaufman. My pronouns are she, they, and I'm coming to you from the unceded territory of the Ahachaman and Tongva people, which is in Southern California. I am a working board member for the Fund for Reparations Now. I have been since February of 2020, and I am a reparationist. I am also a white woman with two kids and a job that's not this. Hi, Caroline. <laughs> I am Joaquina Reed. Uh, and on the streets, people call me Kina. I am a Jedi practitioner. Um, that is the day job. <laughs> I, I, I enter spaces and places to create justice, equity, diversity, inclusion through my agency, JRE Consulting, LLC. But I'm also apparently a content creator on the internet. That's, <laughs> that's, 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 that's why I'm here. I am the creator behind the Anti-Blackness Reader Project. I am the creator behind Divesting for Whiteness. And today I am the lucky facilitator of the conversation that we're having here at Speaking of Racism. <laughs> Shout out to the amazing speaking of racism, uh, the owner, uh, the wonderful, the illustrious Tina Strawn and her committed team. There's Jen Kenny over there. Um, and so we're excited about having this conversation. Uh, I just want the readers to know that Caroline and I have been talking about reparations <laughs> over a span of time. <laughs> so, so this will not be the first conversation, nor will it be the last. Um, but I gotta tell you, I've never heard the term reparationist. This is new to me, friend. What's what? Are you cool now? Are you part of the cool kids? Is there a cool kid table at the reparations lunchroom? There really is, and you're a member of the team as well, Kina. I didn't know I was a reparationist. Don't make me feel fancy. Right? A reparationist is a person who believes that reparations are necessary for our nation to experience racial healing. Just necessary. A person who talks about reparations, who pays reparations, who fights for reparations. That's a reparationist, like an abolitionist. I love it. I love it. There's a part of me that loves it, but also is like, dun, 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 because... Sometimes what happens when people start to take things on as an an identity, as opposed to an action, things can get lost, right? Um, We see this when people are like, I'm an ally, and then all of a a sudden they stop allying, right? So uh, there's certainly a tension there. I'd love to start some, well, I think it would be impactful for folks who are going to listen to this episode. Uh, to know that I am a Black woman, I am a cishet woman, I live in the South, although um, I have lived in other parts of the continental U.S., Um, and I am on unceded territory of the Homa and Chati people here um, in Louisiana. And I, and I, and, and with that, with the kind of that arc of my social identity, and the physical place that I live that shapes my experience of life in this conversation, I also think that it might be helpful for folks who are listening in to know that I wasn't always a reparationist, all right? And I think when people meet me, especially people who meet me now, they're like, how, huh, what? And so I think it's really helpful because the truth of the matter is, Caroline, that there might be people who 
listening to this episode and may actually have some feelings like, like why are we still having this conversation or, you know, might be even opposed to the idea. So I think that this is a helpful kind of kickoff um, as the descendant of enslaved peoples. Uh, side note, everyone who's Black is not a descendant of <laughs> enslaved people. People are shocked about that, all right, that, that Black folks across the African diaspora, um, not all of those folks are descendants of enslaved people. So there's that little bit of information, the more you know. Um, but as the descendant of um, enslaved folks, I didn't always believe in reparations, right? Um, I truly, at some point, it's comical, but also sad. But at some point in my life, as an adult, as a professional, I just thought, hey, the past is the past. And, you know, here we are. Here I was. I was a professor at a, a, a university. Um, I had multiple degrees. You know, I mean, again, it just is like, what version of Kina was that? A previous version. And um, I was just one of those people who's like, look, that was so long ago. What's the issue? I have, you know, my car is in a faculty parking lot. You know what I'm saying? I knew racism was real. So let me get that clear because I don't want anyone to listen to this and be like, she didn't believe in racism. No, that shit I knew, right? But I just thought that my sense of where, like my, I, my individual progress as a black woman was a sign that social progress had been made and that repair had been done, right? Uh, and so I was like, oh, you know, we'll be happy if Harriet Tubman's on the $20 reel, but that, you know, right. again, it just, uh, uh, uh. and here's the thing, here's the kicker. Here's what changed it for me, okay? I tell people I started to actively divest from whiteness in 2016, all right? That was an actual choice I made. And when I made that decision, there are lots of things that I started to revisit in my mind. Lots of conversations, lots of topic, topics, even a lot of like learning material, right? So it was just this huge thing um, that's lots of things started to open up for me. And as I started to teach myself about actual enslavement, because also, side note, I didn't learn about that in my primary education. I didn't even learn really about the true impacts of chattel slavery in my Black family, right? Um, and that's a whole different conversation because I think people don't really understand it's not just egregious that Black history is left out of our primary schools and our understanding of U.S. history, but it's also egregious because of intergenerational trauma, because of racism, because of anti-Blackness. Black families don't even have access to that information. Um, a lot of Black families don't have access to that information to transmit to their, their children, right? So I wasn't learning this history in school. I was not learning this history in the community. I wasn't learning this history at, in my home, right? So in that moment, as a professional Black woman who had access to books and all kinds of things, I was like, I really need to teach this history to myself um, where there are gaps. And it is when I did that, when I made a very significant choice to do that, I was like, oh, shit. For example, I found out that it is enslaved people, mostly enslaved labor, that is utilized to build the United States Capitol, not once, but twice for free. And so in summary, in that learning, I was like, oh, reparations are due. And for me, initially, it really was just based off of the economics of it, right? We're gonna talk about the moral component but for me, and again, for listeners, people who are like, I just don't understand the big deal. It had nothing to do with feeling good. I looked at the, the sweat equity, right? 
Um, there have been people and there are economists who do this work that talk about and try to negotiate how building, <laughs> what, what's the labor cost of building the White House? What's the labor cost of building the United States Capitol? And we're talking about millions of dollars of sweat equity alone. And that has nothing to do with the moral component of it, right? So um, I'm gonna kind of start us there from the place of why should we have a conversation around reparations in 2022? And I'm gonna start with that first one, which is this metaphor that I think really helps a lot of people. If I gave you seed money for an enterprise, Caroline, let's say $500,000. And I don't know, what kind of business do you want to open up? Chicken and waffles? I don't know. <laughs> Whatever you want, you know? Whatever you want. Do avocado toast. Avocado toast. Go for it. You're, you're, you're going to get those yoga people, the leggings people, pumpkin spice folks. Gotcha. You got your target audience. Okay. And because we know how much white women love avocado toast, you got you a hit. You got you a hit. All right. We're going to be big. Big, 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 big. All right. Um, a year into this, there are avocado toast places across California. You worked your way to the East Coast and you're about to open up Avocado Toast International. And if I come to you and say, return on investment, your response can be, oh, well, that was just in good faith. That is the metaphor I make for people because without enslaved labor that served as the starting funds for a global and national industrial economy, there would be no power force of United States um, global dollars. That wouldn't exist. That wouldn't be a thing. And that's the first place I like to kind of start the conversation for folks. It is about the economic stimulus that industrialized chattel slavery created in the United States and abroad. In fact, a lot of scholars have actually said that the first major industry across global markets was indeed the movement of African people. So let's start there. <laughs> people are like, whoa. That was a lot. <laughs> Let's start there, though. That was a lot. Um, wow. So I just want to add that it it is said by some, it, there are many ways to calculate this debt and adjustments to be made. And the going figure is $13 trillion, And um, it's very labor-based. And to be very intersectional, you know, um, very cut and dry. And as a mother of two daughters um, and, you know, a white person, also a descendant of enslavers, something that I found out after I started my reparations work, um, women were raising white babies, women had no claim to their own bodies, black enslaved women. Um, the, the reproductive services to be fairly clinical. Um, there is no accounting in 13 trillion for that. And, I, and those are unthinkable, quote, services. Um, so 13 trillion is a drop in the bucket and, um, and it'll, you know, it has kept many economists busy for, for many generations. And this is an old ask reparations. It requires a lot of vulnerability to stay with, we're still asking for reparations. Yes, that wound is still open. Yes, we're still asking. And I think, 
when I have encountered Black people who have said that reparations will not be necessary, thank you very much. Um, I just try to honor that. I don't know anything about their experience, you know? And for me, my best reasoning and understanding of economics um, as a U.S. citizen, it's, it's a no-brainer, you know? Um, if you gave me the 500,000 and let's say it turned into as hot as Starbucks, right? And then I drop dead and my kid takes it over. My, my cute, smart little 14 year old has her own avocado toast business. And you go to her and you're like, Isabella, I need my $500,000. And that's no interest. And that's not how these things work. But anyway, you know, and then she's like, bugger off, Kina, have some avocado toast. We'll name, we'll name one of the avocado toast. <laughs> Like, what's your favorite fruit, honey? We'll call it the Kina toast. Yeah, we'll add that to the menu. Yeah, that's what we'll do because we're grateful. Like, no, that is not how that works. Um, so it's, it's so much easier to think of these things in, on a micro scale. And it's like, well, obviously that's not how that would work. But we have to have discernment and concentration and not get distracted just because it has been many generations. And, you know, I, yes, I'm the descendant of a person who enslaved and was um, given 500 acres of Yamasi territory in South Carolina. Um, I don't have that land today. I'm not a homeowner. I'm, I'm in an apartment. It's so interesting because we think, oh, well, the, a descendant of an enslaver who was very wealthy for many generations should be a landholder. And so it's very interesting, you know, it's complicated, it's distracting, it's hard to stay focused, right? I can't, I can't give a, this big thing to anyone because I don't have it. Um, but I have advantages. I have, you know, I've got my white privilege. I, I did go to college, you know, my dad paid for that. Like that's all, that's a whole nother thing, but like, it's hard. It's hard to wrap your head around. It's hard to stay with it. It's horrifying. It's horrifying. It's old. We should be over this. Like really that's like reparations is the least. It is the beginning. It is the barest. Because if you, you know, if our, if my progeny and your progeny are trying to work it out over this avocado toast business and my kids have been on yachts the whole time and your kids had to go without, you know, college or diapers because they gave up the $500,000, um, you know, it's still a debt. Well, I think that... Let's stop here because it's still a debt. And that really sets us up for some definitions um, because I think this is helpful. But I really wanted to just dive in the middle to help people understand that A, your position around reparations can change because mine did. And two, complicate that, right, with the understanding that there are plenty of people who are descendants of enslaved folks, plenty of people who are descendants of enslavers who have big feelings around this. And that's okay. In fact, even as you're listening, if you can feel some tension in your body, we invite you to take a pause, to ground yourself, to, 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 to experience that discomfort. Because part of how we get comfortable around this conversation, part of it is just normalizing that, right? Normalizing the fact that we don't really know how to have these conversations because we haven't been invited into them, right? In fact, we could argue that the opposite has been true, that for a very long time, people have tried to do a lot of things so that we wouldn't have to have 
the conversations, right? So let's just name that, that you have permission to change your mind. You have permission to have big feelings, right? <laughs> uh, and we're going to go from that to really, let's try to help people understand what reparations are. But I would like us to start from the position of what they aren't, okay? So I think the best way to understand what reparations are, let's talk about what it isn't, all right? So I'm going to start that conversation with you telling us some of the things you have heard and you've heard a lot of what people think reparations are, but they aren't. Did that question make sense? Absolutely. Okay. Um, boy, I mean, reparations is not white Americans getting what they deserve. It is not becoming oppressed. It is not white people being displaced, unhoused. It is not garnishing wages from white individuals. It is not seizing land, property. Um, it, is, it is not a loss of wellness for white people. It's, um, you know, and certainly in the case of indigenous reparations and the land back movement, no one is displaced, you know, to, to speak of our sister cause. Um, it is not, it is not turning the tables. You know, the dismantling of white supremacy is not the creation of black supremacy. That is master's tools. It's very hard to think about a world where white bodies are not valued more than black bodies without without this binary, like, oh, it must be the opposite. The opposite will then be true. And that I gently encourage us to have so much more imagination than that. You know, um, our ask is for federal reparations from the United States. And, and yes, reparations could occur, could, can, will, should occur at the federal level, the state level, uh, the municipal level, the institutional level, potentially the familial level. Um, nobody's asking that, but for um, voluntary offerings. But um, when we focus on federal reparations, what we're looking at is- Wait, Before we we'll go into what that is, I just wanna add some more stuff to the what reparations isn't. And I love Good. what you said, this is not about a whole bunch of like revenge causes, right? This is not this is not a revenge crusade, right? Um, I've heard a lot of people um, call it a oh gosh, this to let you know how horrible the word is because like I've suddenly lost it. A handout. I've actually heard people saying, "Oh, that's black people. They just want more handouts than they've already received." right? So reparations is not a handout. It is not a, a, um, a beggar's pitch. Um, and so it's important to really kind of, again, that's why I love the fact that we started with the, the metaphor of the startup fund that is necessary to create global enterprise and economy, right? Uh, so now that we've talked a little bit about what reparation isn't, I would love for us to talk about what we understand reparations to be. And mm -hmm. before we do that, I do have some um, something that could be considered a definition that could be helpful. Um, but again, I just want people to know that because these conversations are ever growing and fluid, I don't want anyone to get married to my definition and be like, well, Kina said, def, you know, reparations is this and that. So just have that, that imagination that you said earlier, uh, Carolina, uh, Caroline. Reparations is a significant collective and legislative movement that centers on reparative justice by way of compensation and restoration for the descendants of Africans 
traumatized by chattel enslavement. Okay. And it doesn't say African Americans, and I want to, to highlight why. Okay. Because believe it or not, reparations is a global movement. And we can spend some time here expanding, right? Because 13 million people that we know of were sent across the Americas, all right? But the reality is that African people were sent globally to various places on the globe for enterprise. And so there's a conversation in the United States around what can repair look like for the descendants of enslaved African people here across the Americas. But there is also a larger conversation globally about how do we respond to the continent of Africa and what has been lost when at least 13 million of your children were taken away, right? So I really wanna make that, like, that context important. While you and I are talking, majority of this conversation and centered around what reparative justice looks like here in the US. While you and I are having the conversation, we want people to realize that while we are having a conversation that is largely based off of our experience of being here in the United States, the conversation around reparative justice and chattel enslavement is indeed a global one. It is a national one for this country. It is a regional one for the Americas, because there are multiple Americas. And it is a global conversation because the global West and the world as we know it has firmly benefited from Africa losing her precious children, all right? So that definition says the descendants of Africans, all right, because the diaspora is large, right? So. I don't know if you wanted to add to that definition or build upon it or anything like that, Caroline. Um, just that there's a term called the Mafa, um, which was create was chosen by Pan Africanists to talk about slavery in its wholeness, in its in its emotional and spiritual consequences as well as the physical and financial um, ruin that it caused as well as its aftermath and so um, just as you were reading those definitions and we were you know remembering because I tend to think very much in the U.S. context because that's where our work is but um, it it the MAFA defined globalization. I mean, the, the MAFA informed globalization, the MAFA informed, you know, the climate crisis that we see today and all of the markets that we see today, like everything that we see was forever touched by this institution that can feel so old, but we know that um, it, it's present with us in uh, across all of lands. <sighs> big feelings I, yeah. I laugh across the internet and various places that I show up and, and teach and work and I say I keep a running list right and I think people think I'm joking but I literally <laughs> uh, I have a literal list the reason why people across the diaspora deserve reparations you know and I, I, I want to take some time to share a few of the things on that list. My list is not funny. I'm just laughing at myself because I think people think that I'm speaking hyperbole when I'm like, I have a list. And I'm like, bam, actually, it's a legitimate list. Yeah. I always like to start with this one. This one, is a, this one is a hit. Reparations did occur in the United States post-Civil War, but... Caroline, won't you tell people who got them? Actually, it was the people who had owned enslaved Africans. They were reimbursed for emancipation, for the loss of labor, because this was capital that was being removed from them. 
And there's not a lot of precedent for that in the United States. And so they required payment and they received payment. Yeah. I think for a lot of people, that's like a myth buster, right? You know, because people are like, what do you mean? So um, reporting from the Brookings Institution by Rashawn Ray and Andre Perry really goes into a lot of data about this, right? So post-Civil War, right, where there's an opportunity to atone for chattel slavery, there have been some instances where some Black families throughout the South did indeed receive 40 acres as restitution, all right? A lot of that was land that had been formerly occupied by enslavers, right? What happens after President Abraham Lincoln, not your great emancipator, but we're not going to have that conversation today. <laughs> you know, I got big feelings about Abe, all right? But after President Abraham Lincoln is assassinated, President Andrew Johnson reverse filled Order 15. And that particular reversal is what took some land that had been given to a small population of formerly enslaved people and returned it back to their, their formal owners. So instead of Black people getting the means and the resources to support themselves, the federal government empowered formal enslavers. In a lot of ways, it was like a callback, like, hey, we had this atrocious period of time where we were just fruiting and not getting along. And now we wanna be back a happy family. And part of what we're gonna do, according to Andrew Johnson, is like get the South to feel better about what has happened by giving them the things that they have lost. And what is tr in true United States fashion is centering white feelings over the material reality of black folks. And we are still living with that legacy today. The idea that white people's feelings matter more than the material reality of black people. So I don't know if you wanted to respond to any of what I just shared. Ready for it. It's hard. It's hard. It's going to be hard. We've never done this before. We don't know how to do this, but it's worth trying. It's really worth trying. Uh, the second reason is, and this is one that I, I mean, we built this ship for free. There you go. I always contextualize the Capitol insurrection that happened in mm -hmm. January 2020 um, within this landscape of white vigilantes who in large part marched into the Capitol, naming it as their building, right? We have actual footage of that, Caroline. That and is actually I think the audacity, no, I'm sorry, the caucasity okay. of these vigilantes storming a building that enslaved people built not once but twice for free. So I say the it, that insurrection, that moment wasn't just an attack on democracy as it know as we know it any place where enslaved people sold into the earth with their blood their literal sweat and tears is sacred space and so that was not just an attack on democracy it was an anti-black moment that is a place that is sacred because of what my ancestors gave to it right? In addition to, just to name this within that context, the indigenous, the indigenous land that was not, um, that was, not, that was, uh, it's unseated. So that, those, that space, uh, as, as well as other places across the United States are sacred because of what ancestral wisdom tells us about those places. And so the late great statement, statesman John Robert Lewis had this testimony to share 
in front of Congress about the building of the Capitol. And this is what John Robert Lewis tells us. He said, imagine building the nation's capital with your own two hands. Imagine in Washington, oppressive summer heat to toil under the sun without the help of a crane, a lift without any of the modern tools that we have today to fight through the bone chilling winter and to shiver through the chilling days of January as you cut, chisel, and pull massive stone out of a quarry to build the foundation, the base of this nation's capital. This capital, the symbol of our democracy was not built overnight. It was not built by machine. Laborers, mostly African-American slaves, struggled to erect this massive building brick by brick, stone by stone. All the while with inadequate food, their relationships in complete chaos, they had no autonomy over their own family or safety. You know, they could be um, injured. They could be harmed or injured at will. And people were, and people were. And people were. and then the fact that they did it was erased. And, and pardon me, I do believe I recently heard a story that the creation of the Capitol was not going on schedule. And so it was actually the forefathers who owned people, who owned enslaved people. They said, we'll rent our workers to you to build this. We'll get it done on time. They also made an extra tidy profit on that. And they got to take the credit for having it built. It was just capital, capital, capital to build the capital. And it was black hands. And now when children walk through these spaces, they are not even told. I think it was Letty that was talking about this. They're not even told that it was black ancestors who created this beauty this amazing recently and i mean really recently if it has uh, memory serves me correct there has been a plaque that has been added to one of the rotundas that kind of named that but that is a very recent development it's not something that has existed for a very long time right it might have been after nancy Pelosi knelt in the kente club and (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it got a plaque and then it got a plaque <laughs> oh my god uh i want y'all to catch what caroline threw down which is in that instance white peoples were able to profit from black labor and that is true you can look that up uh i have an episode of another podcast please say black where i actually go into great de- detail with a historian about this um Reason number three from my list. <laughs> the some of y'all still profit. And this is this is real spicy. Okay, it gets real spicy. So we know that in 2005, JP Morgan Chase, which is a, a bank that we typically call Chase Bank, uh, which is one of the biggest banking systems in the United States admitted that two of its subsidiaries, Citizens Bank and Canal Bank in Louisiana, accepted enslaved people as collateral for loans. That year, the institution, so in 2005, reported that between 1831 and 1865, two of their predecessory banks accepted approximately 13,000 enslaved individuals as collateral loans and took ownership of approximately 1,200 of them when plantation owners defaulted. To add insult upon injury, J.P. Morgan Chase's response was to place a temporary apology letter on the website, BTW, that letter cannot be found. I have looked for it this calendar year. And for a short while, they provided scholarships 
to certain students in different parts of Louisiana after that disclosure was made. Hashtag Chase owes you money, right? And JP Morgan and Trust is not the only institute that is still in existence today that had some level of investment in chattel enslavement. Edna, Insurance, Citibank, Wells Fargo, Bank of America are all institutions that historically were able to profit from the enslavement of African people. Right. And so, you know, if we want to get very specific, we can say, okay, at that time, the law allowed for that behavior with one's capital. So is it really the bank's fault? One could argue that perhaps it is not. So then we need to look at the federal government who we can still hold accountable for these acts as, a, you know, as an entity with very deep pockets. Now, I think I, I couldn't entertain arguments all day that those banks are culpable for that behavior, even though it was legal. But, you know, okay, which is why the fund for rep, you know, and then it's like, well, how about the people that got the loans? Those individuals who put people up as collateral, who got the loans to make their toast shops and became so successful, right? Do we wanna go after the individuals? It, it's arguable on so many different levels. Um, it gets more yeah. and more complicated. It gets complex, but we can't get to solvency without naming all the complexities. We right. have to name the nuance here, right? We have to like put it all out, digest it. Right. And, and just because perhaps no U.S. bank, maybe no U.S. bank is not complicit. Maybe we have to bank at banks that are complicit. Maybe there is no purity. Maybe, you know. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm glad you made that. And so I struggle with this on a personal level. I actually bank at chips. Yeah. Right. So let me, for the listeners out there, Kina wasn't giving that information um, because it was coming from a judgmental place. I'm just right. giving the data. And I think a lot about that. In fact, I think maybe even this summer, I was like, damn it, Keena, like, why are you still baking at Chase? And then the place that I actually landed was, which is like, where can I bake? <laughs> like, where can I bake? There wasn't complicit in the violence, you know? Which, like, that's a whole different conversation. Where can we, where can we take our fake money, right? <laughs> like, I mean, hashtag bank black, um, you know, accountability is love just because everybody's doing it wrong doesn't mean we need to let it fly you know we need to have the the discernment and the concentration and the willingness and the courage to just keep saying that's not okay that's not yeah. okay and, that's and not multiple okay. things can be true at once right that's that, right that's something that i i told so true to my heart right like i can have an uneasy relationship with chase bank but at the same time, acknowledge the violent shit that Chase Bank has done and continues to do. And I'm not just pointing out Chase. I'm just saying, like, that's something that is a useful tool for any of us who are seeking to live just lives, right? Is recognizing that how do we prepare for the future while we're dealing with the reality of where we are? I think that gives us a place to talk about, like, personal accountability, right? Um, like, what are the things that we can do on a personal level to have some momentum, right? Because here's your regular listen, who's like, I'm not in Congress. I am not the person who's keeping HR 40 from hitting the Senate floor, right? Uh, so I want us to spend some time with that. And I'm going to launch the first one, and then I'm going to give this back to you, right? Well, first of this, one of the things that I love to tell listeners to do, actually, to create the momentum around this, is actually engage in critical thinking about what you think you know. Okay, that's a that's a really good starting point. Like, for example, let me just say this: I adore 
1619 project that was developed by my sis, Nicole Hannah-Jones. It is amazing journalism. I mean, it is like, it is an example of the craft done very well with the New York Times and the New York Times Magazine. And it explains why sis has won lots of awards and should get lots more, Yeah. right? But I also want to complicate that because a lot of people say 1619, 400 years. And I'm like, mm, back up the train. Yeah, there's more. Right? There's more. In 1502, Juan de Sobrio of Seville was the first European to bring enslaved Africans to New Spain, a place we would call Hispaniol, a place that we now know as Haiti and the Dominican Republic. You remember earlier we said there are multiple Americas? Well, Central America and South America are part of the Americas. So oftentimes we, because we're Eurocentric, not excuse well, we are Eurocentric, but we're also ethnocentric here in the United States. We tend to think about America as the, well, the United States is the only America that counts. And that's not accurate. There are three Americas in existence, North, Central, and South. Um, and so, with that in mind, we actually see African people bought to the Americas as early as in 1502, right? Um, but to extend this a little bit more, and this goes back to me saying, just complicate your history, apply some critical thinking here. In 1526, the first European settlement that is established by the Spanish occurs in a place called San Miguel de Guadalupe which is present-day South Carolina. Between 5,000 and 8,000 people from various parts of West Africa were being shipped to present-day South Carolina as early as 1526. So 1619 is where we have a bill of sale. And that's why people point to that, right? They point to the white lion that brought 20 enslaved Africans to the British colony known as Jamestown. But I think it's important that we recognize that that's the, that's the day we have a receipt. That is not the day the practice starts, okay? So that's the first thing you do to get some like momentum is just learn the history, provide some critical thinking, spend some time asking questions about the things that we've been taught and the things we haven't, all right? But I would love to ask you, what do you think are some things people could do personally to get some momentum around this movement? Stop trying to get it perfect. I tell myself as I search for the right words, learn who we really are. Um, you know, as soon as you say 1520, my head says, Oh, in 1520 in England, they were disallowing children to speak Welsh. And they were beating those children in the schools if they spoke Welsh because it was time to speak English. And that was my ancestors. And um, it gives me courage. It gives me understanding. It gives me grounding and um, endurance to focus on who my ancestors are, what they went through what they put other people through all the things you know history is knowable i don't know how as a as a younger person i thought history was unknowable i think it's because they were lying to me about history and it and i i knew on some level you know and it just made it seem too big and too hard and and i don't want to do this you know um i mean yeah, in fifth grade, we had half of the year was Native Americans and half of the year was um, colonies. And in Native Americans, I got an A plus. And in colonies, I got a C minus. And because I was just like, I, I don't want I don't want to do this. This is but um, right. So learning history, it's 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 fascinating, you know, and when we when we can remember that this is our actual life you know this is this is the development of of what we are a part of today and it is knowable it is you know we got here 
we, we got here on a certain path and we're going to get out of here on a, on a certain path. And, um, it's, it's infinitely practical. So, um, you know, have some courage, have some curiosity. Um, as Trisha Hersey would say, take a nap, do some dreaming, um, you know, stay focused. And, um, certainly I want people to pay, um, reparations, you know, I want them to consider what they have, consider the contemporary wealth gap. And I'm speaking to, uh, white people, certainly not your black audience. Um, let's just contextualize that with some language. So what Caroline is speaking to, I think is something I call like, um, micro reparations, uh, usually I tell people it's the, the lowercase r reparations, which is those direct and individual actions with a mm -hmm. smaller scale um, or scope that engages in some kind of restorative advocacy. Correct me mm -hmm. if I'm wrong, but I just wanted people to know what you had shifted to. Thank you. I mean, right, for me, there's there's federal reparations, which needs to happen. It is the least thing that must happen in this country. And so to participate um, in that is valuable. And if you do that through the Fund for Reparations now, that's great. If you conceive of a different way to do that, um, you know, that's also fine. You know, wherever your heart is. Um, and then you know, engage in mutual aid, which is what Kina is talking about, which is just, you know, being helpful to people that you see around you who need help, who don't have the advantages that you have, which is often people of the global majority. And, um, you know, and we don't, not everybody has uh, $200 a month or even $25 a month, right? But we all have a little extra capacity, a little extra attention. We've all got a mouth. We've all got opinions, you know, keep reparations in your mouth. Talk about it. When it's about climate, talk about reparations. You know, how are we going to face the existential crisis of climate until we are united? You know, until white America has its neck, its knee off of the neck of black America, I don't see us rising to that occasion. You know, when we see public health issues, keep reparations in your mouth. You know, um, we are the creators of culture every single day. And if we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that reparations is the inevitable step that we must take, um, you know, when you're calling your congressperson, call your congressperson, be sure your congressperson and your senator are in your phone so that you can call them, you know, and let them know what you think about things. Um, I also wanted to backtrack because I think that's an important thing. It's actually on my list of reasons why, but part of why I encourage people to practice mutual aid, practice lowercase reparations, those personal kind of small scale actions is because of something like the, the wealth inequality and racial wealth gap, which again, the data exists. According to the Harvard Gazette, there was a report in 2020 that talked about the fact is in the United States, the average black and Latin A household owns earns about half as much as the average white household. Um, I mean, there's analysis after analysis here. The Federal Reserve um, reported in a 2018 um, publication that the historical data reveals that no progress has been made in reducing income and wealth inequality between black and white households over the past 70 years, right? And so, I know that it's hard to see through the fodder of statistics sometimes, and it's even harder to see through like the, the, the perspective of lived experience. And I think this is why for people who are white, 
um, racialized as white, it's a struggle because if you are struggling to make ends meet, which plenty of people are trying to do right now, it is very hard to see how whiteness and supremacy culture has given you an advantage, right? And what I always tell people is, but how much difficult would be the thing you experience be if you were black, right? So if you are a poor white person, right, or a working class white person, and you're attempting to like get like refinance a, a loan, right? Think about how much more difficult that would be if you were black doing it, right? So that can often help people recognize poverty is systemic and it is happening to people across social and racial backgrounds. But we're looking at pathologies here. We're looking at patterns here, right? We're looking at the history here, right? And I, I just have to say this out loud. What social scientists, what educators like myself have consistently said is that policy that is good for Black folk, in particular Black children, Black trans folk, then guess what? It's the opposite of trickle-down economics, right? We've been led to believe that if it's good for the 1%, if it's good for the Jeff Bezos, if it's good for the Bill Gates, then it's good for us. But actually what we know to be true based off of the data and the research is if it is good for the person who is least protected, least protected, then everyone, everyone counts. So for people who, again, are racialized as white, who are like, listen, I'm struggling. I don't know how I'm going to pay for these bills, take, send kids to school and college and stuff. Those are real feelings and those are real realities, which is why you should be even that more invested in Black communities wellness, right? You know, sometimes I say it. Well, actually, I say this a lot. Don't do it for me. Do it for you, right? Like, a world where Black trans women are safe and protected is a world where everybody wins, all right? So in terms of the things that, that we do, even those personal choices that we would call mutual aid and reparations are still benefit for social wellness of us all. The last yeah. thing I want to end this, I really want us to end this episode with the work that you do, um, the brilliant work that you do uh, with Reparations Fund and how people can get connected and learn more about that. Thank you. So um, we are the Fund for Reparations Now, www.fundforreparationsnow.org. We are fiscally sponsored by the National African American Reparations Commission, uh, NARC, which is a program of the Institute for the Black World 21st Century. And we are not only tasked with the passage, promoting the passage of HR 40, which is our federal reparations bill, but we are tasked with um, assembling white money white apology for repair. And that is for national repair. That is for projects of national um, import and priority. And those priorities are set by NARC, the National African-American Reparations Commission. We are an all volunteer board uh, working to get these monies and then we just follow black leadership. We don't touch these monies. They are distributed by NARC for their priorities. Um, they have a 10-point platform for reparations, uh, 10 different modes of repair that aim to um, heal and repair Black Americans um, holistically, um, symbolically, materially. And those repairs are based on um, the harms you know, they are appropriate repairs. And so far, our monies have gone toward point nine, which is the creation and maintenance of Black sacred sites and memorials. Um, they've chosen a few um, projects that they've wanted us to fund. One is the Elaine Legacy Center uh, in Elaine, Arkansas. That's in the Delta region of the United States, um, about an hour 50 um, west of Memphis. And Elaine was the site of our nation's bloodiest race massacre. But 
it was in rural Arkansas and it was not much of a place when it occurred. Um, the carnage, um, which much of the violence was meted out by federal troops, which is an important aspect to what happened. You know, this was state sponsored violence. Um, deaths are between 80 and 2000. And um, the town was decimated. And so the descendants of the Elaine massacre are not well supported. So our support has been um, very good for them, very important for them knowing that they have um, some funding to put together, you know, this site to commemorate this life lost. And um, there, there has been tremendous land theft and we're helping them figure out you know, what happened to the black land holdings. After this massacre, um, which occurred September 30th, 1919, as part of um, the Red Summer of 1919, which was a fairly calculated campaign of terror um, orchestrated by the KKK and, and white nationalists. Um, after that, there was the largest transfer of land in the state of Arkansas's history in a land sale only two months later. Um, and so those records need to be examined. And those families are, are waiting for repair. Um, right now, they're just struggling to get by. You know, there's no gas station in Elaine. There's no supermarket. Um, there's no good school. Um, the children have to leave. So anyway, um, that's one of the projects. We've also been involved with um, a, a black cemetery, Pierce Chapel. Uh, we're involved with the descendants of the Chattahoochee Brick Company, uh, which was a site um, outside of Atlanta where um, convict lease labor, the the stipulation carved out after emancipation, whereby prisoners could be um, used like enslaved labor. And so um, the Chattahoochee Brick Company made great use of convict lease labor and really worked those individuals um, more or less to death in creating the wealth of Atlanta, the bricks, the literal bricks. You know, if you can build your building for $200,000, or you can get all of your bricks for, you know, $10,000. Um, that makes a really big difference, you know, and that, um, that business model was so successful by a Mr. English that now much of Atlanta is named after Mr. English. Um, he was, his business was very profitable and it was so profitable that he needed to open a bank and that bank, um, became a very large part of what helped Wells Fargo to become such a powerful institution in the United States. Um, of course, the name Wells Fargo is that, is that we have that Western idea, but um, a lot of the capital that took Wells Fargo to the place where it was, was the bank that grew out of the Chattahoochee Brick Company. So, and that, that story, um, has a lot to do with today, you know, the abolition moving, movement of the moment. And um, how do we see, um, as Dr. Christina Cleveland tells us and um, Brother Resma Manikham tells us, you know, that the plantation is the primary institution, you know, the, ins the organizing institution of this country. And so we need to see we need to see those connections and, um, you know, we have, we have a national amnesia or a not, it's not amnesia. It's, it's willful. It's a lot of things. It's different for everyone. We need to understand more. And so that's what we're tasked with doing, um, with the fund for reparations now is to inform the national understanding of the needs for reparations, as well as to fight for the realization of reparations. I uh, so appreciate the work you're doing um, on multiple fronts. 
to bring awareness, to speak truth to power. I want to really end this episode on a personal note. Uh, I am 93% African. Um, and I remember having a conversation with a uh, with another black person last summer in Alabama. Shout out to Legacy Trips, <laughs> Tina Strong. Uh, I was a facilitator for a trip. No, not last year, this year. Oh my gosh, where is this year taking us? Earlier this summer. And I brought out, I don't even remember, but this is how often I bring up you know, chattel enslavement and reparations. It's a thing. It's a, this is not a conversation I have once a, once a while on a podcast. It's a regular part of my life. And this black gentleman said, well, we'll never get them. And I've heard that so many times. And I've said, well, I have to believe that in my lifetime, in my lifetime, this is my work. And then he says, boisterous and humorous, he says, how will we even prove it? You know, it's like, how will we even prove that we were slaves? And I said, well, I'm 93% African. Nobody that I know in my family has ever been there. My grandparents, maternal, paternal, you know, <laughs> that passport stamp's not there. How else can you make it make sense? And we had a laugh. But the reality is that something that we like to think about that is so far removed from our national story dramatically impacts us all. I am four generations removed from enslavement. That means that my great great grandparents were enslaved people. Do not give in to mythology that suggests that we are talking about something that happened so very long ago. Thank you for spending time with me for this recording. All right, speaking of racism listeners, you can find both of us on the internet <laughs> doing things on the internet. Um, I'm pretty sure that they will include information that uh, is helpful for people who want to get involved in your organization, um, who want to provide labor. I know that you're looking, always looking for support, always looking for interns, that kind of thing. Um, you can find out about me, Joaquina Reed, the creator behind Divesting from Whiteness podcast, the Please Say Black podcast and the Anti-Blackness Reader. And we will hopefully see you soon or hear you soon or check you out later. Bye. Bye, Kina. Thank you. And thank you to Grapes for the music. The song is I Don't Know.